My name is Nancy Farrow, also known as Mama Lou, and I'm the founder of Epic Experience. Epic Experience's mission is to empower adult cancer survivors and thrivers to live beyond cancer. I hope that as you listen to Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer, you find hope, healing, and empowerment. Through stories and education, we aim to guide those impacted by cancer, and more importantly, offer love and support to anyone out there who needs it. This is Beyond Cancer. Good afternoon, everyone. Today we have Karen Hines and Susan Kravinsky with us, and we're going to be talking about what it's like to lose an adult child to cancer. And I am so thankful for both of you being here, Karen and Susan. Welcome. Uh, We're going to start just by having each of you introduce yourself, who you are, where you live, career, and one fun fact about you. So Karen, why don't we start with you? Okay. Um, Let's see. I'm Karen Hines. You said that already from Shelby Township, Michigan. I recently retired after a 35 year career as a dental hygienist. So now I work for a nonprofit that we started after Cassie passed away. Let's see one fun fact. I knew this was coming. This is a boring fact. I've lived and worked and been in the same 20 mile radius my entire life. Um, I got something fun just today as my nails are painted um, a million different colors by my four-year-old twin grandchildren. And it's not just on my nail, it's down my finger. And so that's my, awesome. I don't know if it's a fun fact, but it's fun. Oh yeah, definitely. Artistic work by children <laughs> on hands is wonderful. Thank you. And Susan. Um, okay. As you said, my name is Susan and I live in Fishers, Indiana. I am an art teacher at an intermediate school. Um, I am not retired, even though I am of the age to be retired. <laughs> I'm still working, but I love, I love my classroom. So I figured I'll know it is time to retire. Fun fact about me is it was just announced today that Disney is having their live marathons and running weekends. And I have decided to do a one and done half marathon during the Disney princess marathon weekend. So awesome. at that time, I will be 61. So like I said, one and done. (laughs) That is wonderful. Is that in Florida? Yes. Yes. Wonderful. They've been virtual and it's like, I'm not doing a, a Disney virtual. I want to run in Disney. So exactly. They, they finally today got the email that they're opening it up for live races. So, I'm, and you know, that's, I, I, I run for my daughter just because of, you know, yeah. for her. And uh, I, I think she would, she would like this one. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, that's a perfect segue into the main topic of our conversation, and that is your daughters, both of you. Um, So tell me a little bit, Susan, we'll start with you. Tell me a little bit about Danielle, 
how old she was when she was diagnosed, what kind of cancer she had, prognosis, treatment, um, and those kind of things. Okay. Um, Danielle was a freshman at Ball State University. She was 20 at the time and started having headaches and nausea and losing weight and not feeling well. And she had a grand mal seizure on Memorial Day weekend. Um, obviously took her in. She had x-rays. Uh, they immediately admitted her to the hospital to find out that she had uh, glioblastoma, which is brain cancer. Um, she initially had a craniotomy and they were able to get 95% of it, um, but she continued with radiation and chemo and she started back up at school. That was her goal was to get back to school in the fall. And she did. So even though she was still, she still had a little bit more radiation and a little bit more, well, a lot more chemo, but she just, uh, she, she made that goal and she kept it and, uh, you know, was able to continue living her life. But the prognosis for, for glioblastoma, um, is typically around 18 months to two years. So it wasn't, wasn't a very positive time, like outlook, whatever. Right. But yeah. Does she have siblings? Um, she has an older brother, Christopher. He's uh, about two and a half years older than her. And he, he was, he was, let's see, I think he had graduated by the, when she was um, diagnosed and he was living in Cincinnati. Okay. So he wasn't in the state. But, you know, obviously everybody comes rushing back. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So and when when they diagnosed her, they would not tell us they would not give us a a timeline. You know, that was everything I, you know, went online to look at that they tell you not to do. And Mm -hmm. that's what I discovered. So it was, uh, you know, it was mind blowing. Yeah, I imagine. Um, how did her brother and, and like, how did you each handle that? Once you went online, kind of got an idea, how was everybody handling it? Well, her father and brother, we all processed everything differently. I mean, it was paralyzing and, you know, my initial reaction is to just everything she needs. I'm here and mm-hmm. just, you know, that was my focus. And that's, that's how I got through it because it's like, I stopped thinking about me and I started thinking about her and what she needs and what she wants and, you know, get her to the next point, get her to the next doctor appointment. Um, you know, and my husband was right there along with me, but then, you know, as time went on, it's like, okay, you have, he was, he was the person with the insurance. So yeah we all had our roles and it's like, his job was to go to work, keep the insurance. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's the big thing. Um, Christopher, he came back on weekends. Fortunately, Cincinnati is only like a two hour drive. So he, yeah. he would come back and, uh, you know, he, he was at a loss. He didn't know how to support her. And he yeah. struggled with that at first um, as anybody does. But um 
And Danielle herself was just like, okay, I've got physical therapy. Let me get it done. I've got to do this. Let me get it done. I'm going back to school in the fall. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of attacked what their job was and just, you know, that's how we kept afloat um, and trying not to think long-term. We just lived day to day and, you know, every day was like, okay, the goal is to get her back to school. The goal is to get her to this. The goal Mm -hmm. is she wants to do that. So we just kept our little goals and just kept moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Karen, how about you? What was, what was the diagnosis? How old was she prognosis? All all that kind of stuff. So Cassie was um, 17. She was a, a junior in high school when she was diagnosed and it was the same kind of thing, just a pain. You're a healthy athlete kind of a thing. You don't think much of it. And so ultimately when she went to the doctor for this pain, then they, you know, ordered ultrasound. And I very much remember being in the ultrasound with her and she was leaving to go on a vacation with a friend and the ultrasound tech was real chatty about this trip to Florida that she was going on. And then all of a sudden, like the, the whole atmosphere in the room shifted. And, um, I said to her something, they had thought maybe she had an enlarged spleen because she had a friend that had mono and they thought maybe she had mono. So I said to the ultrasound tech, oh, are you looking at her spleen? And she said, no, um, no, her spleen's over here. And she kind of showed me and that, but it was all business right after that. And, you know, in retrospect, you know, she saw this kidney. So she was diagnosed with kidney cancer. It was her left kidney was um, engulfed in a tumor. And um, everything happened pretty quickly. She had the surgery. Honestly, they mentioned the cancer word, but we didn't really believe it was cancer. We just thought it's just a tumor. You know, there was no cancer in my family. So you don't even know the language yeah. when you start off in that world. And then, um, then when they removed the kidney and everything around it, I didn't even know anything about the kidney and I'm in the healthcare field, but I mean, I was with <laughs> teeth, not with body parts. Right. So um, they removed the kidney and then said, well, the pathology report isn't back yet, but it looked odd, but I'd never seen anything like it. And we're not convinced it's cancer. We'll just wait for the report. But either way, we got all of it. And so we kind of celebrated like cancer free. This is amazing. Like there's no cancer. And then um, a few weeks later, after the path report came back, then it was cancer. It was a rare form of kidney cancer, which is why it looked odd. And um, And I remember thinking like, I looked over at Cassie. So her dad and I were in the room and I looked at her and she kind of had a tear fall down her cheek. And I remember thinking, um, I don't even know why she's so upset. Like it's, they got it all. They said they got it all. So this is over. And um, I think she thought it was kind of over too, but just hearing that you have cancer obviously was the phrase I think just rattled her. And um, so they referred us over to oncology from there and, in, in oncology, then they said, well, even though, you know, they, they're confident they got it all, we really should do some more tests and make sure it didn't spread anywhere else. So that's when we realized that it wasn't gone. So she had, um, it had already spread by then to her hip, her, um, pelvic area. She had a spot on her rib. So Mm. she ultimately that same summer had her, um, she had hip replacement, pelvic resection. They did some, um, cryoblation on her, her rib, but again, like Danielle, you know, it was just a focus. It was, 
you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to finish it. I'm not going to miss any school, you know, so she was back for her senior year. Wow. And then, um, you know, she was really never cancer free. It was always scans, you know, treatment. Yeah. Yep. Healing recovery. And then back to life three months later, the same routine. So she did go off to college. She went to Michigan state and, you know, going away was all part of our push for her too, because I knew Mm -hmm. that if, if we didn't embrace her dreams with her as much as every mom wants to grab hold and keep them where you can see them every second of the day and kind of micromanage their life. I, we knew that if we took away her dreams, then this was going to end. And I think from like a prognosis perspective, because it was a rare form. So I, I of course did the internet search as well. And it was 18 months for advanced kidney cancer, but because it was this rare form of kidney cancer, which she was like the 14th case in the world of this kind. So you kind of are hopeful, like, you know, she's young, she's healthy. There's all these treatments, like they can throw anything at her and, and see if it works, you know? So, which is what they did. And I don't think as a parent, even though maybe in the back of your mind, you know, this is a possibility. You just don't embrace that possibility. You don't even want to put it in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. like as if it will come true because I thought it, you know, which is right. not that's silly, but that's the way that I don't know. That's where my coping skills sat at during that time. Yeah. How about your, uh, does she have siblings then also, uh, your husband? Yeah, so. She was a middle child. Yeah. So she's an older sister, Ashley, a younger brother, Ethan. Ashley was away at school at Purdue when she was first diagnosed. Um, and then her brother, Ethan, was in seventh grade. Wow. So um, she was diagnosed in the spring, which was right at the end of Ashley's freshman year. And she ended up, she came home for the surgery. And then by the time she got home for the summer, she wasn't, she didn't want to go back away. She didn't want to be that far away. It was an eight hour drive. So she wasn't, she was transferring and Cassie was really insistent that mm. if you're transferring, cause you want to come home and you want, you want to transfer, do it. But if you're transferring to come home to be with me, I'm leaving. So when I'm done with, with high school, I'm going away to college. So don't come home for me because you're yeah. wasting it. And, you know, Ashley really was wanting to come home because she wanted to come home. You know, she was changing her major and you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. So, so but I, I'm sure Cassie had a, an element to play mm-hmm. in that as well. And then with Ethan, he was so young, you know, right in the, right away, we went to the counseling yeah. office and I talked to them and I was a little worried, you know, when they're in middle school like that, you don't know what they're going to turn to and what's going to be offered to them. You know, kids start to can go down a, a difficult path that can alter the rest of their life. And our focus was so much on Cassie and we just tried to make sure we were divide and conquer with the other ones to make sure they yeah. were, they were okay, which I mean, they're okay now. So I guess we did. Okay. <laughs> <You> did. <laughs> <laughs> but it could have gone really crazy astray. Oh, definitely. So for, for your daughters, what was the timeline then? It sounds like they were both given about the same prognosis of 18 months ish. Um, as much as they can guess. Yeah. So things. Cassie lived, she lived for four years. So she was a okay. junior at Michigan state when she, she passed away in March. So after and her we, semester, she came home, had a surgery and then never really recovered after that. 
Okay. So for pretty much that whole four years, like you said, she was repeating this um, yeah. pattern of surgery, treatment, recovery. Yep. Until the last. Yep. And kidney cancer okay. is a ton of surgery. Yeah. So while they did do targeted therapies to try to control any, you know, growth, there was mm-hmm. always growth somewhere new. And then there was just different, different ways of removing it, but it was mm-hmm. never a chemo thing because the kidney is a filtering organ. Right. So it filters chemo and it, you just never really, that's just never the mode of treatment for it. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I hadn't made Neither that did connection. I at the time. Yeah. <laughs> we learned a lot. <laughs> So four years. Okay. And how about you, Susan? Uh, well, and Danielle, like I said, she was di- diagnosed at 20 when she was a freshman in high school in 2006 and in and, and freshman in college, sorry. And um, she lived seven years. Um, she passed away May 15th, 2013. And same thing. She had three craniotomies mm-hmm. in those seven years and off and on different, different chemos. She actually did radiation twice towards the end Uh, there, you know, it it gets questionable if you can have it twice or not, but Mm. she was a good candidate for another bout of radiation. Unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't take, but so she, she lived the seven years with treatment throughout and did manage to have like a good two years without any chemo, any radiation, anything. So, you know, that yeah. those were, you know, she savored those. I, we all did. It was like, you know, it, but oh, you yeah. just kind of wait for the other shoe to drop because, you know, it's coming um, with the glioblastoma. It is, it, it is um, contained in the brain. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's so aggressive that uh, it just, you know, just a little bit just kept coming back and um, wouldn't go away. <laughs> yeah. As it became clear in both cases um, that this, it was coming to the end. How did your families deal with it? How did you deal with it? The, the siblings, um, was there anything from that, that particular time, which obviously would have been um, extremely difficult, I'm sure, um, that you learned or that you remember uh, from that time? Uh, well, um, so I, the one thing that I would say to anybody in that process too, was that we engaged the social worker at mm. our um, cancer center. I, oh, I shouldn't say we did. She engaged us and, <laughs> and thank God, because mm. truthfully, that was a huge gift. There was one story I'll share that um, Cassie was seeing her pretty regularly. And we, when she, anytime she would go in for any kind of treatment, she always stopped in to see Kathleen. And there was a point where Cassie knew that she needed, her siblings needed some help, but they weren't going to go see somebody that just Mm. wasn't going to happen. So she basically approached Ashley and said, I think Ethan needs some help. And then she approached Ethan and said, I think Ashley needs some help. So together, you know, let's kind of do this. So she sort of played each other off, you know, them off of each other. And then Kathleen came to our house that day. So I knew it was all happening. 
I took the dogs for a walk. Kathleen spent time with them. And honestly, to this day, I have no idea what they talked about through Mm. it, but having a professional sit with them to talk through some stuff. When I came back, all I know is that the coffee table was loaded with Kleenex and they were all better for it. You know, I, and I know when it got to the end, one of the big hurdles really for her being able to peacefully pass away was that she had made a lot of promises, especially to her younger brother, that she would do everything she could to fight this disease and she was Mm. not going to die from it. Well, you know, that's what you, that's what everybody says, but at some point for her, that wasn't going to be the case. So she needed Ethan to be okay with her giving up, if you will. You know, and, and Ethan needed her to know that it was okay. Like your promise was good at the time, but I'm not holding you to that anymore so that they could have no regrets in the end. I mean, we were very blessed. We had hospice in the home. It was a terrific experience. She was in hospice in her home for 40 days, which was way longer Mm. than anybody expected. And that time in the end of sharing for everybody and laughing and crying and all of that was truly what we were able to hold on to as a family and as her friend group, because everybody felt like they had closure. Hmm. So, you know, that, that would be engaging some support. If, if, you know, if there's any breakdown in communication, you need to get somebody else in the room that doesn't have a vested interest, except your health. Right. Yeah. Susan. Uh, it was a little different for us, just in the fact that um, Danielle, Danielle was a very strong and independent young lady, and she refused to come back home, which was fine. And um, at the time, she was living on her own in an apartment, and her friend w- lived in this cute little town and was moving to another house and Danielle wanted to move to that house. And she was, her speech was going, her mobility Mm. going um, and being the the smother that was her nickname for me that I was, I was like, yes, yes, you're going to get that house. And my husband, he's a little bit more practical and he's, you know, he wouldn't say it out loud, but you know, I, I, I know he's thinking there's not much time left. Why, why would you be doing this? And it's like, this is what she wants. She's getting this house. So we moved her into the house. Um, her brother came, we got her moved, settled. She was living on her own. And um, again, just started just, you could just see her losing her weakness in that. Um but we kept maintaining, uh, I don't know if it was denial or what, but we, I would go over and cook for her. Uh, she was not driving, but her friends would come over, take her out to dinner. You know, she was in a wheelchair at the time. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just, we, she just kept pushing forward and it, it was, uh, she just kept doing things and, yeah. It, it was, she's just that kind of person. So I was still working and she had fallen and had gotten some bruises. Mm-hmm. 
And I took her into her oncologist and they did some blood work on her and everything. Come to find out she had gotten leukemia on top of the brain cancer. So, you know, it was just like, you know, hit to the gut and she had a hair appointment after the, after the doctor's appointment. And like I said, she was a little, she was my, my wild child and she dyed her hair pink and we went out to dinner and had a margarita. So awesome. That was just her attitude about life. And we kind of just followed her suit. You know, it's like, I didn't, I knew she wanted to go and live on her own terms. And I know she wanted to die on her own terms too. Mm -hmm. So after this fall, I left work and moved in and in a matter of a day, she had um, lost like her, her mobility. She didn't get out of bed. Mm. I called the caretakers and she was in hospice for like not even 24 hours oh, and wow. passed away. And I always tell everybody that's, you know, she came into the world. I was in labor with her for like mm, an hour and 45 minutes. So she came in quick and that's how she left too. And that's how she wanted it. Um, wow. But we, we took our cues from her and yeah. I, you know, I, I, I look back and I think, you know, should we have gotten and talked and I, I, I don't know if, if, if that would have been the answer. Yeah. Focus was on this is how she wanted to go. And I, I needed to respect that. Yeah. I love the pink hair story. That's awesome. (laughs) I love it. So when you think about this whole journey that both of you have been on all the way up to the passing, how did it impact or change the relation, the other relationships in your family throughout this whole process with, with family or yeah, with, well, specifically your nuclear family, the siblings, your spouse, Mm-hmm. Um, and also with your, with your daughters yeah. up until that point. I, I like to think Danielle and I had a very open relationship and, and it was fun. And we, she had opportunities to travel and see more in her seven years of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do in her life, in their life. Um, and I like to think that he, we were honest with each other at all times. Um, she was maybe a little less honest with me. She didn't always open up sometimes, and which is to be expected. But I, I think it, my husband and I brought us closer because he leaned on me. I leaned on him. Um, he, he wasn't it being the the main caregiver. He didn't see you know, you know all the tears and everything that I had to go through. In the same respect, you know, he was off working, traveling, taking people out to dinner and, you know, and I wasn't. So it's like, you know, we respected that. And, you know, I, I, he, he knew that he had to do what he had to do. And I knew that I had to do what I had to do. So I think it just brought a lot more respect um, between the both of us and with our son, he, you know, he is just, you know, he calls me smother because <laughs> I, I call and text him all the time, but, um, you know, it, 
was he was able to, you know, it's his only sibling. So, yeah. Sorry. Um, So he, he had some adjustments and I worried about it, but he was, he was able to work through it. And I think he saw his sister living life on her terms. And after she passed, he decided he was in the business world. He decided that that is not what he wanted to do. And he enrolled into a culinary school and he started following his own passions. And I think, like I said, watching her chase her dreams um, made him realize that the life is too short and I, I, I do not like the business world. So he's, he is now a ship, like I said, and I, I know that's because of, of her influence and her, her life that she lived. He, he knew that he needed to make a change to make himself happy. And uh, I'm glad he did because he, he loves it. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's really neat. All right. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. Karen. You know, our nuclear family, I think, you know, in the death part of it, I will say that everybody grieves very differently. So where I was kind of like the, you know, in in the beginning, I think the pain that's so real in the very beginning, I think everybody feels that the same way. I mean, it's, it's physical, it's mental, it's awful. Mm -hmm. And then as time settles in, then, then that's when the process that you do individually really starts to happen. And um, my husband and I made a very conscious decision to not be the statistic of couples that get divorced when a sibling or when a child dies, because it's really hard and you do it differently. And, and him and I were very different grievers and that at points I'm sure was frustrating for both of us, but we did kind of dig our heels in. And ultimately when, you know, your heels were dug in and you wanted to spin around and walk away, we spun back towards each other and figured it out. And I think our commitment to each other also, you know, the kids recognize that too. And our commitment was to them too. We're not going to let this destroy our family. You know, so I, you know, this many years later, she died in 2012. So, you know, almost 10 years later, we are a much stronger family together. Mm. Definitely look at life differently. But the thing that I was probably most excited about was when you got to the point in grief where I, some of the things that you know that we shouldn't complain about, you know, like, oh, it's garbage day and my garbage can blew over in the wind and now I got to pick this garbage all up. And when you're in that crisis mode, you're like, who cares? At least I have garbage, you know, I'm alive. And, and then it was great, you know, when the garbage can blew over and I was like, oh my God, the garbage can blew over, you know, cause then, you know, your life's kind of centering back into yeah. a normal feeling again, it'll never be the same, but to have some normalcy in it again, felt pretty good. You know, the, um, my husband used to say all the time, fake it till you make it. And, you know, we would go places and do things and it was just so hard in the beginning, but you went and you lasted as long as you could. And then you booked it. There was that first Christmas when I was with a bunch of girlfriends having a little Christmas dinner at a friend's house, a girl's group, we're always together. And 
you know, all of them were talking about how all their kids were coming home from college and all that. Mm. And then that was the year that, you know, my daughter wasn't going to walk in that door. Yeah. And so that, you know, that I really struggled with. I remember getting up from the table at one point and just going into the bathroom during that, that dinner and crying my eyes out, washing my face with cold water and going back out there, you know, and then it, but it, it settled in eventually. I mean, I think it was years when, because she was away at college and you could probably relate to that too with Danielle, because she wasn't living at home. Right. Just picture them walking in the door and it's yeah. this, you know, crazy. And then maybe five years down the road when I realized like, I know she's never going to walk in the door, but then when you know, she's never going to walk in the door and you lost that feeling, it's yes. like that next level of grief settles in to where wow. you're, you know, that step beyond. And, you know, so it's a long, it's a long journey. And the one thing that I will say about living with an adult child too, because Danielle was that much older than Cassie when she mm -hmm. passed, you know, they have to live their life. And that's mm -hmm. why things like Epic, you know, giving mm -hmm. experiences where they can meet people just like them, which is what we do with the Cassie Hines Shoes Cancer Foundation is, you know, we create experiences for young adults to be together, to empower each other, to live their full life. I think most of them sitting around a campfire know their life has been shifted, whether yeah. it's their own death or people that are close to them that pass away. Um, you know, Cassie and Danielle left a, a group of great friends that they met at, you know, in the cancer world and they passed away and those friends had to grieve that too. Mm -hmm. And so, so letting them live their life is so huge, you know, yeah. and it's hard yeah. as a parent to let that happen and to support them and some of the crazy things that they think they're going to do. You know, there was, Cassie was literally, we were meeting with hospice and she was talking, she had one of her professors come to our house because she wanted him to sign some she was in speech pathology and she wanted to, she, she needed some signatures so she could start the speech path program. And she had signed up for that spring to um, study abroad in Spain. I'm, we're like, okay, give the deposit. She's never doing that, but right. let them live because they yeah. need to live even to yeah. that very last breath. They're still living They're You know, they have that right. Right. Yeah. And what you said about you know, making those plans. And at initially I remember her talking about, Oh, next summer, I'm going to do this. And I'm thinking mm. back in my head, we don't know that you're going to be here, you know, but it's like, I let her. And like you said, you make the deposit, you buy the airline tickets and it's like, <laughs> yay, they got to go. So it's like, yeah. and that's how she kept doing things. So you, you can't live in fear. You, you know, yeah. you're going to miss opportunities if you do that. Yeah, I think I used to say that I'm well, I was used to being scared, but I never wanted to live in fear, you know, right. and that's just very, it's a very different way of life. Like scared is in that moment. Fear is changing your future. Right. 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 Yeah. And allowing them to do that, you gave them hope or they gave themselves hope to, yeah. to keep going. Which and we gave huge. ourselves hope too, right. because, you know, right. if they could have something they looked forward to and then reached it it was you know yeah. an incredible you know when when Cassie did her uh you know her first young adult camp program and she came back down that escalator at Detroit Metro and we saw that aura about her that just you know and at the time she left I thought 
what is this kid doing? She doesn't, I mean, yeah. she's not going to do, she, it was just so ridiculous that she was right. going, but it was an exceptionally empowering week for her mm-hmm. that I think gave her drive to live way longer than she was ever supposed to. Absolutely. That's same with Danielle. She mm-hmm. loved for her experience and made all these connections, came back determined to live even more. So that's, and like you said, she had her own new world with people like her. And, uh, you know, it was fine. I wasn't a part of it. You know, I, I was okay with that, but (laughs) she relied on these, on these new friends and now family to help her get through things that I would never understand or anybody in the family would ever understand. So I, I, I believe too, that that's what gave her those extra years, just, just like Cassie, you know, that's incredible. I'm wondering at any point along the journey, can you think of something you wish someone would have told you kind of thinking of paying it forward, I guess, to those who are listening. Is there something that you wish someone would have told you at any point that you would like to share with someone else? Gosh, I, I've, I think that honestly, people might've told me stuff, but you're, there's just no <laughs> way you're listening to, to anything, you know, any bit of advice, but I will say for the grief part of it, if you can, and if you and by can, I mean, afford it literally, because, you know, you, it, cancer costs money mm-hmm. and families take time off work to support that all. But after a death, if you can take some time off, my husband and I were very lucky to be able to take a month off mm-hmm. after, and we had this, you know, no man left behind thing. So we were never in the house alone. And mm-hmm. we just were there to support each other in that very numb beginning. And, you know, before you get back to life again, where everything gets busy, um, you know, if you can take that time and then there's this really tricky part when you do go back to work that people don't know what to say to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a, weir- it's a really weird thing. As a dental hygienist, I was at the same practice for years. My patients all walked through the cancer journey with me. So now they, they come back as, you know, and I had been off for a little while. And um, so it was like three months, maybe, or three or four months. And, you know, patients were coming in and some of them didn't know she died. You know, how's your daughter doing? And then I have to say, you know, and then I get a new patient. And that very first time when I, you know, Cassie's always my daughter. We know I had three kids, you know, that, that comes up very naturally, but then when someone doesn't know you and they're going to say, you know, um, so how many kids do you have? And, uh, you know, what are they doing now? And I know what's coming. And as soon as I have to tell them, well, maybe my daughter passed away from cancer when she was 21 years old, you know, blah, 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 then mm-hmm. I know that they're going to feel some kind of way. And that very first time that I excluded her from me saying that to a stranger that I was really never going to talk to again, um, I had a coworker who lost a daughter. And so I went up to her and I just, after it happened, I was just frozen. Mm-hmm. And I cried with her about it. And she had experienced that already. And she's like, it's not minimizing anything. It's just protectionary in the moment, you know? Yeah. So, so I guess that, you know, I guess give yourself a break is yeah. what I, I wish somebody would have told me. And, yeah. and I wish I would have taken him up on that. <laughs> give yourself some grace because it's, it's 
there's no rule book. No, no. And, and I know for me, a lot of people are offered help offered to do this offered to the, to the, to do that. And, um, I, I, guess I thought I had to do it all. And if I couldn't do it, my husband would take time off and I I just kept it in the family. And looking back, I think, you know, you do need to utilize (laughs) the people who really want to help um, that it's not just lip service. And uh, because, I mean, I would not change a thing, but I just think back to like, Danielle might've enjoyed other people's company other than mine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe that for a minute. Very (laughs) selfish of me. (laughs) But, you know, if if there's a hand out there and and you feel comfortable, just, you know, grab it. Thank you both so much. Uh, This has been very powerful. And I know that you are going to impact somebody who's listening. So Karen and Susan, thank you. And um, that's all from us for today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer. For more information about Epic Experience and our programs, or to donate, please visit our website at epicexperience.org. Music for this podcast is provided by Moonshiner Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us so we can share our story with more people. Also, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you'll know when new episodes are released. We hope you come back and join us for our next episode.